Okay, good morning, everyone. We're um, continuing our study in the speeches of the book of Acts. Um, in the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus instructs the apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus says is this, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They had to wait about 50 days until after the 50 days after the Feast of Passover at the Feast of Pentecost. And at the Feast of Pentecost, the Spirit arrived and announced in arriving a new era in salvation history. It's the era of new wine and new wineskins. The Galilean Jewish Christians are the new wineskins. There was about 120 of them that are, had gathered in the upper room waiting for the Spirit to be poured out from on high. And they did experience that and started to speak in other languages, which were recognized by the people congregating in Jerusalem. These people were Jews who had moved back to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. And then Peter spoke with them and challenged them with respect to their not understanding who Jesus was, convincing them that he was the Messiah. And then uh, 3,000 were added to the church, and those individuals then would have stayed in Jerusalem and then filtered into the Roman Empire so that we Gentiles could understand what it is they witnessed that the Jesus had come and brought salvation, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. Um, so the Galilean Jewish Christians are the new wineskins, and the spirit words they announce are the new wine. Uh, we're studying, again, the speeches, and this morning we'll focus on Peter and the beggar. It begins in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. The time of the apostles' visit was the ninth hour, and that's three in the afternoon, which is the hour of prayer. There were also two sacrifices that were held daily in the temple. And three o'clock was the time not just for prayer, but for the sacrifice as well. So more people would come to the temple at that time to sacrifice, to observe the sacrifice, and to pray. Rabbis at that time taught that there were three pillars for the Jewish faith. There's three things that you wanted to make sure that you um, participated in, that you uh, valued. One was the law, the Old Covenant, specifically the Old Testament, especially the first five books, which most will have memorized. Then there was worship, coming together in the temple to worship together and showing of kindness or charity. Almsgiving was one of the main ways to show kindness and was considered in Judaism to be a major expression of one's devotion to God. So if you were a devoted Jew, you paid attention to the law, 
you paid attention to worship, and you gave alms. With their mindset and worship then, those who entered the temple for the evening sacrifice and prayer would be particularly disposed to giving generously. And that's why the beggar, he sat at the gate where he sat as people were filing in to to um, go into the temple. And in verse 3 is what it says. When he, this beggar blind, blamed from birth, saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The temple in Jerusalem was comprised of courtyards within courtyards. And the courtyards in the perimeter, and they got smaller and smaller and smaller, the courtyard right inside the outer gate was called the courtyard of the Gentiles. And there was a gate then leading from the courtyard of the Gentiles into the court of women. And Jewish women could go into the next courtyard. And then Jewish men could go into the next courtyard. And each gate became more and more and more restrictive until in the innermost place, only the priest could go. And in the very center, in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go. So the, the further into the temple you went, the more restrictions were placed on those able to enter. So this beggar sat at the gate between the courtyard of the Gentiles and the court of women. He, was, he wasn't allowed to go in any further because he was lame. He was damaged goods, and he wasn't able, even though he was a Jewish man, to enter into where other Jewish men would be able to go. Um, by the way, it's in this courtyard of the Gentiles. That's the outermost courtyard. The, the different, there were different stalls and places where you could buy sacrificial animals that you would take into the inner courtyards. And so in this courtyard of the Gentiles, inside the temple, they had put up these stands to sell things. And that's the courtyard that Jesus cleared. Because this is the courtyard of the Gentiles, Jesus would say, not a court for, not a place for, for those entering in who were Jewish to be able to not walk as far with their animals at any rate. Um, 
Peter ended up saying to this individual, silver or gold I do not have, but what I give you, what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And this man, lame from birth, experienced his ankles and feet miraculously strengthened. Peter grabbed his hand and he leaped to his feet. It's said that in the 14th century, there was a priest, Thomas Aquinas, who was a scholar as well. It's said that he called on Pope Innocent II in the 14th century when Pope Innocent II was counting out a large sum of money. And Pope Innocent is is reputed to have said, you see, Thomas, said the Pope, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And then Thomas Aquinas was supposed to have responded, true, Holy Father, was the reply. Neither can she now say, rise and walk. Which is kind of interesting. Um, Peter healed the beggar in the name of Jesus Christ. And what does it mean? We're going to find that a lot of times in the book of Acts, that they come in the name of Jesus. What does it mean when a person comes in the name of another person? What does it mean for them to heal in the name of Jesus? Um, those who heal in Jesus' name speak in Jesus' name. Name is a function of representation. When someone in authority dispatches someone to function in their stead, the subordinate comes in the name of the ruler. It's it's it would be similar when an ambassador is dispatched by the president to do business in a foreign land. The ambassador comes in the name of the president, in the authority of the president, and acts on behalf of the president as the president's representative. And Peter and John then, in healing in Jesus' name, the big thing about that is they are functioning as Jesus-authorized representatives. They are fulfilling Jesus' purposes, and that's the significance of healing in Jesus' name. It attaches the healing ultimately to Jesus. Um, in verse 11, it says, while the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Um, with awareness that the miracle had happened to him, the lame beggar enters the sanctuary with Peter and John. Before, again, he had to sit in the court of the Gentiles at the gate of the sanctuary because he was lame and blemished and he was denied access to the inner courts for the first time. He was able to enter into through the gate, into the place where other Jewish men could go. He was worthy now to enter the house of worship. And what we're going to find in the book of Acts, this will happen again and again and again. Those who were rejected for worship in the old religion of Judaism will find acceptance in the name of Jesus, whether a lame beggar, an Ethiopian eunuch, women, Gentiles, all will be made um, suitable and worthy to enter God's presence. Again, with this guy, this guy had no special faith. We don't know if he knew anything about Jesus or knew anything about Peter. His healing was an evidence of God's power. When we think about faith and miracles, there are places in the Bible where you need faith 
to experience a miracle. But what happens in the early chapters of Acts, it's not really about the faith of the individuals. It's about those who speak in the name of Jesus. There's a, a couple ways we think of faith and miracles, and we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. It's popular to believe that faith exists for miracles. So if you have enough faith, you can kind of use that faith as currency to get a miracle. And if you haven't had a miracle in your life, then it's said that perhaps you didn't have enough faith to have a miracle. But the problem with it, that's not the way there are cases where that's the case, especially with Jesus. But here, we don't have any sense that this guy had much faith at all. It was not about his faith. It was about Jesus' name that brings the healing. So we could say then, it's not really true that faith exists for miracles. I think the opposite is true. Miracles exist. And what it means then, it's these miracles are being done so that not just this individual, but groups of people could see the miracles and believe that Jesus is who he says he was so that they could place their faith in what he said. Um, Peter goes on in verse 13. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. What Peter is doing here is he's is he's introducing a bunch of testimony. He has himself and John as witnesses, and not just himself and John as witnesses, there are another 118 who were witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. There's the apostles and the disciples, and these are individuals who were witnesses of Jesus after he had risen from the dead. But there's not just their witness. Now, these miracles are witnesses as well. Um, that's the way Peter describes these things. This is further evidence that Jesus is who he says he was. Listen to what it says in Hebrews. Is he speaking to Jews at this place, convincing them, Jewish Christians, to place their faith in Jesus Christ? And what he says in Hebrews 2, 1, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from the good news. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What the writer is saying is that in the old covenant, which was inaugurated through angels, if you didn't listen to what the angel said, there was a penalty. You needed to take the angel's words seriously. What the writer is doing, even more so, 
don't trust the word of angels, trust the word that comes through Jesus Christ. It says, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard, there was eyewitness testimony about Jesus. And then it says, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So what the writer suggests then, that these miracles, which will happen in Jerusalem at the time, they are pieces of evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. It's not just about the miracles, it's who the miracles point to. That Jesus is the one that God had predicted would come in the Old Testament. The prophets talked about him, the one who would be come in the, in the line of David. He would be the one who God would send and who would bring salvation. Um, in light of the evidence, their real guilt was denying Jesus when he was here. Simon Greenleaf, he was a principal founder of Harvard Law School, and he lived in the 19th century. And um, he was also a world-renowned expert on evidence. He wrote a lot of treatises on what evidence is and what evidence should and should not be admissible. And he was a, a he was kind of very important with respect to laying down a foundation. He was also either an agnostic or an atheist. He really didn't believe in God. He just he, he believed the resurrection was a hoax, or it was a hoax or a myth, something like that. One of his students then challenged him one day to consider the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Greenleaf did that. He said, okay, I'm going to do that. And so Simon Greenleaf then um, set out to disprove the resurrection using the, uh, the standards of admissible evidence. And what ended up happening, he ended up concluding that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was fact, not fiction based on the laws of legal evidence, and being a man of conviction and reason, he ended up converting from agnosticism to Christianity. He determining that because of the eyewitness evidence, the ancient documents that were circulated at the time, that the, the, the fact Jesus' resurrection is, it was evidenced and it was evidence that demands a verdict. And in Greenleaf's then, he says, if, if Jesus rose from the dead, he has to be God. This is what Peter is driving these Jerusalem Jews to understand. And this is where he picks up in verse 17. So now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on 
as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are the heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. In ancient Judaism, forgiveness was available for sins of ignorance. If you didn't know any better, you could then kill an animal, sacrifice something, and be forgiven. Intentional, deliberate sins was another matter. Jesus then, when he, when he professed, Father, forgive them, remember what he said, they don't know what they're doing. So when they crucified him, there wasn't sufficient evidence at that time to cause their rejection of him to be an intentional sin. But at the time Peter talks, those times of rejecting Jesus in ignorance had stopped. Jesus was raised from the dead. The different languages that the disciples were speaking evidenced that Jesus is at the Father's right hand. The miracles that are occurring, the healing of this beggar, these are, this is evidence as well that Jesus was who God says he was and is who God says he is. So if they then at this point, reject Jesus and deny him. It becomes not a forgivable sin, but an unforgivable one, because the testimony is clear. Jesus has proven, and the witnesses dictate that he is who he says he is. Um, only in receiving him by repentance and turning to him, believing he is who he says, is there forgiveness, refreshment, and restoration. You know, we think of we're going to run into a lot of them, a lot of miracles. You know, there are miracles that occur today, yeah, perhaps, but not as many as we would like. I think probably each of us could think of a time when we wanted God to perform a miracle or are wanting God to perform a miracle at this time, but where we have wanted them, they have not occurred. Um, it seems that miracles occur at significant junctures in salvation history, we're going to run into a lot of them in the book of Acts. And as we should, again, this is a unique juncture in salvation history. I'm going to close with a, um, a quote from C.S. Lewis. And I'm going to read this. He talks about, because we didn't live at that time, we probably shouldn't expect to see as many miracles as they experienced at the time where they lived. Listen to what he says. You are probably quite right in thinking that you will never see a miracle done. They come on great occasions. They are found at the great ganglions of history, not of political or social history, but of that spiritual history, which cannot be fully known by men. If your own life does not happen to be near one of those ganglions, how should you expect to see one? If we were heroic missionaries, apostles, or martyrs, it would be a different matter. But why you or I? Unless you live near a railway, you will not see trains go past your windows. How likely is it that you or I will be present when a peace treaty is signed? 
when a great scientific discovery is made, when a dictator commits suicide, that we should see a miracle is even less likely, nor if we understand, shall we be anxious to do so. Here's what he says, interesting quote, nothing almost sees miracles, but misery. Miracles and martyrdoms tend to bunch about the same areas of history, areas we have naturally no wish to frequent. We'll find that there's going to be a lot of miracles because of the unique juncture in salvation history. And we'll find, again, in next week, this miracle led to punishment. And Peter and John being called before the courts to answer for what they were saying. Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for Jesus and for the evidence that backs up his claims. He claimed to be the Messiah, the one you send to allow us to become members of your forever family. You dispatched Galilean Jewish Christians to speak first to Jews, but then to go and all these to speak to Gentiles. And because they were successful, we are able to think about these and hear and study these spirit words. We're able to hear the evidence and make our own conclusions, as we do, those who are here, that we believe that Jesus is who he says he was, God, having come in human form to create a way that we could become parts of eternal life. And thanks for that. Thanks for the evidence that we don't base our faith in just conjecture, but he, Jesus, Jesus did exist, and he did rise from the dead, and their witness and their miracles, and so our faith is on firm, solid ground. Thanks for that, in Jesus' name. Amen.